Open up our scriptures to Galatians 6 and let the kids go on out. Children, if you would, parents, if you'd like them to go, kids up through age 8 to the children's church, they can go on out now. Galatians chapter 6, page 975 in the house Bible if you need that. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we have been set free, amen? Free from the law and the just condemnation that comes upon sinners, free from sin and death, free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from the power of Satan. This is a great message, the message of the gospel It is the only message that brings hope and healing. And this freedom is uh, is the free gift of God for us. It's not something that we receive, as it were, based on the merit of our own uh, good deeds. It's given to us freely by God. And it's given to us freely because it's already been paid for. Christ Jesus has paid for our redemption. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our sins and our sorrows and made them his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. The yoke of the law was a burden too heavy for any of us to bear, but Christ bore our sins and carried our sorrows. And now he says to us, in the words of Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a blessing it is to know the Christ who carried our burdens, who bore our guilt on his shoulders, those sins that would have carried us down to hell and crushed us under the weight of God's just judgment. Christ bore our burdens. That's the gospel. And this letter of Galatians has been unpacking and especially defending that gospel in the first five or so chapters. And now in the middle of chapter five, he's really come to a point Paul has where he's applying the gospel. He's drawing out the implications of the gospel for all who have received it. And one of the great implications of the gospel is this, that those whose burdens have been borne by Christ willingly bear the burdens of others, especially those who belong to Christ. Those who have had their burdens borne by Christ 
willingly, joyfully bear the burdens of others, especially those who belong to him. This is the message of this passage, Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 10, although we're really going to focus on the the text of verses 1 to 5. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, those who have had their burdens borne by Christ gladly bear the burdens of others. We, Christians, follow in the steps of our Lord who joyfully bore burdens that were not his own. And even as we read earlier in Romans chapter 15 in the scripture reading, we who were strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. We follow in his steps. And so the foundational command in this section, verses 1 to 10, falls in verse 2. You take a look at it again. This is going to be the guiding command for this whole section. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? I wanted to have you turn to a couple of passages. If you want to hold your finger here, I want to grab your Bible and take a look at these with me. The first is John chapter 13. John 13. And... In this account, John is recording how our Lord observed a meal with his disciples, their last earthly meal together, the, what we call the Last Supper. And when they came into the room to observe this meal together, it was probably a Passover meal. When they came into the room, there were no servants. It was a hired room, and there were no servants there to wash their feet, as was customary. And of all the most amazing things, the Lord of glory took off his robe and got a basin of water 
and stooped down on his knees and started taking off his disciples' shoes and washing their feet. And this amazing act was to do a couple of things. In the first case, I think it was a picture of spiritual cleansing that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately through his impending death on their behalf. But also it formed for them an example of how they should serve one another. And Jesus says that if you notice in verse 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And then down in verse 34, just skip down a little bit. Our Lord said, a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you what? Love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The law of Christ. Now, the false teachers in Galatia, like the Pharisees, were very zealous for the law of Moses, very zealous for the law of God. But the truth is, sinners will always be crushed under the weight of God's law. As Acts 15, where Peter said that the law was a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And as Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And they themselves, listen, he said, they themselves are not willing to lift one finger to move them. But in contrast to the Pharisees and the false teachers, Christ says, come to me, take my yoke upon you. I will give you Rest, Because Christ Jesus bore our burden. He bore the yoke of the law for us. And now he turns to us and he says, okay, now you love one another like I have loved you. Bear one another's burdens. And of course, in one sense, that commandment is nothing new, is it? What's new is how Christ has fulfilled the law and how he's given us the ultimate example of that kind of love. As John says in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, he says, And it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, in Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and In him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness 
has blinded his eyes. Those whose burdens have been borne by Christ, those who walk in the light, they love one another. They bear one another's burdens just like their master bore their burdens. The other passage I want you to look at is 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, Paul uses this very phrase, the law of Christ, here in this passage. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, this part of this letter, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, um, arguing for his right to be financially supported uh, by people to whom he was ministering uh, spiritually. But he had recognized that some of the people... Uh, that he was trying to win over to Christ were actually skeptical of his motives. They were questioning uh, whether these preachers like Paul are really just in it for the money. They're just in it for an easy paycheck. And so he says in verse 12, look at this. He says, so we have not made use of this right, but we endure Anything We bear any burden rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He was willing to bear this burden of supporting himself in the midst of a busy ministry to these very people because he was, because of his love for them and his desire that they came to know Christ. Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, he says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. In other words, he followed certain Jewish ceremonial laws, even circumcision at times, in order to, to, make, to, to spread the gospel. As long as the gospel itself wasn't at stake, as long as the gospel wasn't being confused, he was willing to to, to live like a Jew. To those, he says, under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. He has freedom in Christ. He says, but I did this in order that I may win those who are under the law. He, in other words, Paul was willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others, to sacrifice his own freedom, to give up his own rights in order to bear the infirmities of those who were weak. And then he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. There's that same phrase. In other words, Paul didn't believe that the law of God had no relevance for Christians, but he was willing to forego the ceremonial aspects of the law in order to win the Gentile peoples to whom he was ministering. So the law of Christ seems to be the moral law of God that's summarized in the two great commandments, right? Love God with all your heart and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The the moral law of God summarized in these two great commandments, epitomized in the substitutionary suffering and death of Christ 
who bore the burdens of his people. And this is why Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what does it look like for us to bear one another's burdens? What does that mean? What does it look like practically? And I think there's probably, you know, a hundred ways that might be examples or, or instances of bearing each other's burdens. And Paul, in this section, really focuses on two applications of this law for his hearers. And the Lord has this then in mind for us as we go through this text together. What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Two major applications of that. The first is in verses 1 to 5, and we'll look at that this morning. And the second is in verses 6 through 10, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next Lord's Day. Now, the first major application then of bear one another's burdens is found essentially in verse 1. Verse number 1. And, and by the way, you can see in verse number 2, the, the, the main command that governs this whole section. If, if you just skipped from verse 1 to verse 3, it would read like there's almost no interruption. It's, it's as if verse 2, he's, he's making his main point in the middle of giving the first application of that point in verse 1. So what does it look like to bear one another's burdens? Well, in the first case, it looks like this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is one of the things that it would mean to bear one another's burdens. Now, I want to draw our attention to six specific elements of this application that the Lord is making for us, that Paul is making for his hearers. Number one, you see that there is a community defined in this section. He starts off with the very first word, telling us whom he's addressing, the Christian community. Brothers, he says. The old word is brethren. It's a term for uh, the body of Christ, men and women. We are a family made brothers and sisters by our relation to Jesus Christ, our elder brother, the one who brings us into the family of God. And you know, family is one of the strongest loves in the universe. The love of a parent for their children, the love of a brother for a sister, a husband for a wife. Will you sacrifice for your family? You do what is sometimes very uncomfortable things out of love for your family. And you are with them and you do for them, even in really difficult times. You stay with your family. You have no option to be isolated from your family. And our relationship as Christ's brethren, friends, is deeper and more lasting than even your blood ties with your own blood family. So he addresses the community of God's family. And within that family, he envisions a particular situation. Number two, there is a situation envisioned, and it is a difficult one. If anyone 
is caught in any transgression. In other words, in this community of Christ, if there is a professing brother or sister who is overwhelmed by sin, the King James Version really captures the etymology of this word to overtake someone is the idea behind it. If someone is overtaken by sin or transgression, as if someone is running up behind you to overtake you and overcome you. In other words, this sin that's plaguing this person is faster, it's stronger, it's more stealthy than that man or that woman. It catches them off guard. It overcomes them and overwhelms them. This besetting sin is a burden that brothers and sisters are actually meant to help bear. Did you know God has put you into the life of your brothers and sisters to help bear their burdens? This is by no means an excuse for our own personal responsibility to examine our hearts and to restore our souls in the grace of God. We all have a responsibility to confess, to repent, to make our hearts right with God again, to receive again the the assurance of his forgiveness in Christ. This is our responsibility. In fact, verse 5, if you take a look, verse 5, using a different Greek word than the word uh, burden up in verse 2, verse 5, he says, each will have to bear his own load. Everyone has to bear his own burden, in a sense, his own load, take responsibility for himself. This is a word here, this word load, is a word that refers to a ship's proper load of cargo or a baby that's carried in its mother's womb, perfectly designed by God, or a soldier's individual pack. In other words, every one of us has a personal responsibility before God to examine our hearts, to confess our sins, or personal responsibility for how we live. But there is a kind of a burden, to use the language of verse 2 now, there is a kind of burden that some people have that others are meant to help bear. They are weaker brothers than we are, more easily overcome less trained in the faith, or blinded by the devil. And this burden is just weighing them down. This sin is just tripping them up. They are caught. They are overwhelmed by this sin in their lives. They just can't get free of it. Maybe they don't, they're not even aware that they're, uh, they're in sin before God. Maybe they're blind in their own pride or their own uh, self sufficiency to acknowledge that they're going in a way that is, in fact, contrary to God's word. This is the kind of situation that is describing a brother or a sister who is caught in a transgression. I want to ask you, have you ever considered that God has allowed some people to struggle with burdens that are actually too heavy for themselves alone? The scripture says in 1 Corinthians that we are not, God will not let us be tempted above that we are able, right? And he will, with that temptation, also give a way of 
escape. But have you ever considered that the way of escape in God's sovereign design may involve the intercession and the intervention of others of his people? That, that our gathering together here together may be the means of God saving someone's, someone from destruction, from spiritual destruction. Because we spoke truth, because we tried to um, bring the gospel to bear, because we were involved in their lives. This is the situation that is envisioned here. Someone who is just caught by sin. And then there is thirdly a directive issued. You should restore him. You should restore that brother, that sister. The word restore means to help repair something that's broken. It's used of a fisherman mending their nets or of a doctor uh, setting a broken arm. And I'll tell you, the ministry of restoring a wayward brother or sister sometimes feels like setting an arm. I mean, it's painful for everybody involved. It's painful for that person. It's painful for the person trying to set that broken bone. And there's such a temptation to just pull back from that, to pull away from that, to isolate ourselves. Most of us do not relish confrontation, right? But sometimes a brother or sister needs to hear from our lips, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Brother, please let me show you what the scripture says. I think you have a blind spot here. The scripture, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, the scripture, scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And it's so easy. It is so easy to say, you know what? I'm too busy to get involved. I mean, this is just too messy. I don't, I don't want to invest in this. I don't want to be pushy. It's not my problem. And you know you're right. It's not your problem. But the scripture tells us, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What would it have been if Christ had said, hey, your sin is not my problem? Brothers and sisters, our Lord bore our burdens, and so he says, now you do the same. Bear one another's burdens and part of that look, what that looks like is getting down into the messiness and the heartbreak and the hurt and the pain of other people's lives as they are going astray from God and doing our best in the power of God and the grace of His Spirit to, to make that thing right, to set that bone, to put that person back on his feet, to, to redirect, to help, to encourage. And it may be that that person is resistant to that attempt to, to restore them to the grace of God, to a place of fellowship with God. And that's why Jesus told us that sometimes we have to not only try to be a restoring influence in their life, but get others involved. 
another brother or sister and go to that person and confront them about their ongoing unrepentant sin. And, and sometimes a person will even be resistant at that level, and, and we have to bring it, Jesus says, and tell it to the, to the church, to the, to the gathering of God's people. And the, the, the church admonishes and, and rebukes and pleads with that person. And it may just be that the voice of the church will rescue that soul from destruction if we as a church are willing to get involved confront, to love that brother, that sister, that professing Christian enough to be involved in their lives. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he is he who promised is faithful. And verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries." Friends, God never meant the Christian life to be lived in isolation, neglecting one another, the gathering of ourselves together. The church plays a vital role in our faith. The church is part of, and brothers and sisters, we're part of the means of God's keeping that person persevering in their faith so that they would not fall away and ultimately be lost. This is a, a vital ministry that we restore one another. We read, we, uh, we, we were praying this morning and, and we're being reminded of how the Lord, the Good Shepherd, restores our souls, right? How does the Good Shepherd restore our souls? He puts his words in the mouths of our brothers and sisters. He speaks through his gathered church as they warn and exhort us. This is the grace of God. And woe, woe to that professing Christian who isolates himself from a church, who's just kind of a lone ranger Christian, out on his own, just doing his own thing. Oh, may God be merciful. But if we would help others, of course, we must first help ourselves, right? We must first take it, pay attention to our own lives. And so here, there is also a qualification given in verse 1. You who are, what does it say? You who are spiritual should restore such a person. In one sense, of course, that's every believer. Because all believers are indwelt by the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, In that regard, this ministry is not just for pastors, but for all who are indwelt by the Spirit. Husbands, fathers, mothers, friends. You who are spiritual, but whoever would restore must be walking in the Spirit. 
This is one thing to be indwelt by the Spirit. It's another thing to be really controlled by the Spirit to a great degree. And this is what he's getting at. He, he, he wants those who, who, uh, who, are, who, who are in the ministry of restoring other people to be themselves being controlled and governed by the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says to Timothy, who's called to be a pastor and one of the chief restorers of the church, he says, now you keep watch on yourself and you might save yourself and those who hear you. This is why the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane famously said that the greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. Those who are spiritual are able to restore their brothers and sisters who are in danger of falling. And being spiritual means, number one, it means that your mind is saturated with the Spirit's words, with the Bible. Someone who's competent to counsel others is someone who knows the Word. And secondly, a spiritual person is a person whose life is controlled by the Holy Spirit's leading. Unspiritual people, on the other hand, will be too biblically ignorant or too morally proud or too weighed down by their own sins to be much good to those who are struggling. So, husbands, you know that you... Your wife, your family, they, they need you to be spiritual. Mothers, your kids need you to be spiritual. Brothers and sisters, be filled with the Spirit so that out of you may flow rivers of living water bringing life to those around you. But the Spirit has to be in you and filling you and controlling you and filling up your mind and your heart first. You who are spiritual, restore such a person. Unspiritual people, when confronted with this kind of situation, will often just become frustrated really more frustrated than heartbroken over someone's sin. They will be so tempted to just be exasperated with those people. And that's why there is an attitude encouraged here in this passage. Notice it says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And no wonder, of course, because gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. We just looked at that a couple of weeks ago, right? So the spiritual man or woman will restore a fallen brother or sister with gentleness. Earlier, I used the illustration of the the doctor setting the bone, right? And uh, that doctor is as gentle as he can be while doing something that is really hard, that's going to cause necessarily a lot of pain. And sometimes... In that pain, that little boy who's getting his arms set will yell and scream and say, I hate this doctor. Maybe even lash out at the doctor who's trying his best to help that little boy. And you know that restorers know what it's like 
to have those you're trying to help lash out at you. And people who are spiritual, they don't take that personally and get angry and frustrated and, and, and they recognize that those, that brother, that sister, they're really fighting against God. And so they are able to be gentle. They're willing to die to self, to bear others' burdens and be gentle with the wayward. Again, Timothy had this ministry as part of being a pastor. And Paul told him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, hey, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, he said, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, enduring what people throw back on you and correcting his opponents with gentleness. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to themselves, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the Lord's good servants know that God is the one that must grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. All of your yelling, your ranting and raving, all of your manipulating and guilt tripping will never change that person's heart. So the person who is reliant on the power of God can rebuke, exhort, correct with gentleness. In Ephesians and Colossians, gentleness is also linked with humility, actually. In fact, sometimes it's also translated as meekness, which implies a kind of humility intermingled with the gentleness. And those who are aware of their own sinfulness, those who are humbled by their own sinfulness, they're really the people that are best able to be gentle with others who are straying. You know who the harshest people are? People who think that they've got it all together. The people who know that they're sinful are able to rebuke, are able to correct with grace, with humility, with with earnestness and with unflinching truthfulness, but with grace. Because they're humble. They recognize their own frailty, tendency to fall, but by the grace of God. And that's where he really comes to in the end of this passage, verse 1. There is a consideration that is enjoined here. He says in the end of 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Friends, it's important to remember that none of us is coming from a position of strength. That all of us should know that but by the grace of God, we would fall into the very same failings. And to the man who says, oh, I would never do something that stupid. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And as verse 3 says here in the text, I say you can just kind of continue from 1 to 3 almost without stopping. Verse 3 says, if someone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
far from being an occasion for pride, restoring a faltering brother or sister should be an occasion for humility and for fear, lest we too fall in the same way. Do you recognize that any person, any of us is capable of any sin given the right situation? Our hearts drift away from God. Seeing someone else caught in sin should be an occasion for our own sober self-examination. And this is what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. It's way too easy for us to compare ourselves with other people, to look at this brother who's fallen and think a little bit better of ourselves, to compare ourselves to one another and congratulate ourselves with a spiritual pat on the back as if we are more spiritual, we're Uh, we're in a better place than this brother or sister. But Paul ends verse 5, ends this section in verse 5 saying, for each will have to bear his own load. Every one of us, in other words, is going to have to stand before God on his own. There's no one in that day for us to compare ourselves to. We must keep watch on ourselves, lest we be full of spiritual pride and fall into a worse temptation than the person that we're allegedly trying to help. May God deliver us from the pride of sinful comparison and break our hearts over the brother who's going astray so that we would confront him, rebuke, exhort, teach, instruct in righteousness with with gentleness and with humility. Friends, let us bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And partly that's going to mean biblically, gently, humbly restoring those who are in danger of falling. I'll never forget several instances where brothers and sisters in Christ came to me and confronted me about my blindness spiritually. And in the moment, having my spiritual pride wounded, there was a part of me that wanted to just rise up and argue back. But on deeper, quieter reflection later, lifted my heart to God and said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. The scripture says, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man afterward will find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. The short term may bring pain, may bring even abuse from that person you're trying to help, hardship. But if God will perhaps grant repentance What a sweet fruit will come out of it. Are you willing to love someone enough to bear their burden of sin? Is our church willing to do the broken-hearted work of exhortation and discipline? 
Are you personally willing to give of yourself, to give of yourself in earnest, persevering prayer for that wayward brother or sister? To give of your time, to give biblical counsel and exhortation, to expend your effort and to be intentional in helping that person to be accountable? Are you willing to speak the hard truth? I mean, that, 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 that's a true friend. If you have somebody who's willing to speak the truth to you, if you have a friend like that, brother or sister, hold on to them like gold. What a blessing. Bear one another's burdens. Is that not exactly what Christ did for us? He who bore our sins and carried our sorrows. Should we think that our path is going to be any different from our master's? In my journal, uh, a number of years ago, I wrote about an experience that I, frankly, long to know more of. What a joyful heaviness has been upon me for the last month or so. My Lord has taught me some of the meaning of sharing in His sufferings. I'm afraid that many times in the past, I've only been content to rejoice in my blessings and isolate myself from others. The last few weeks has brought me to a greater place of bearing the burdens of others. And it is indeed burdensome. But there is a deeper joy in knowing that this is the chosen path of the Christ to bear the burdens of his people. And if there's anything that might help me to know him, that's what I want. In the midst of the burdening, he has granted real joy and happiness. Teach me your ways, O Lord. May God grant all of us to have more of that heart, to know more of that heart of our Lord and Savior. Amen.